Well, good morning. As always, I want to say welcome to our services. Welcome this week to our continuation of our Advent series, The Promised King, where we have been studying Isaiah's familiar prophecy in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, this prophecy that gives us that fourfold throne name of the coming Messiah, who we know today as Jesus. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, you may remember that we've already seen that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the one who knows the best way to live, the one who will help us live the best way if we will trust him and obey him and follow him. And then last week we saw that Jesus is the mighty God, a fully God, fully human, who came that he might pay for our sins and reconcile us to God and give us inexhaustible hope and soul deep security and unending grace and love uh, that just never, never stops. And then today we come and we're going to talk about the third part of this throne name. And along with that, we're going to tie some things together that apply to all four of the parts of this name. So the third part of the throne name uh, is everlasting father. And this is a title, as you're going to see, reveals so much amazing, so much heart-thrilling truth about our Savior. And so I want to read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 again, and then we're going to pray together. Hear the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, would you bow with me as we pray together? Jesus, we thank you today for being our everlasting father. And it's not a way we, we normally think of you, but it is so important and, and so edifying. You are, Jesus, a king of compassion and grace and patience and kindness. And we ask you to help us see you as you truly are, as you reveal yourself in your word. And Lord, may the sight of you just thrill our hearts. As we walk with Isaiah this Advent, would you continue to use these familiar verses to save sinners and sanctify your people? We ask all of this in your beautiful and all-satisfying name. Amen. Amen. Now, for us to understand what Everlasting Father is telling us, I think we, we need to remember some historical context that I, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago as we began this series. Uh, some things that we see in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, also in First Kings chapter, or Second Kings chapter 16. Isaiah is, you may remember, writing these words from Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. He's writing them more than 700 years before Jesus' birth. And he's writing them during a time when Assyria is this rising superpower in the Middle East, this growing empire that is threatening all of the other kingdoms in the region. And to the north of Judah and Jerusalem, the smaller nations of Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Syria, which is next to Israel, these two smaller kingdoms that are closer to Assyria, they are getting nervous. And so they form this alliance to uh, defend themselves. And they want Judah, the southern kingdom, and King Ahaz to join in this alliance with them on the principle that three kingdoms are, are better than two. But King Ahaz refuses. And so these two kingdoms, Israel and Syria, they attack Jerusalem and their goal is to replace Ahaz with a puppet king who will go along with them. And this attack throws King Ahaz into a panic. God then sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and he gives them him this simple message. He says, do not be afraid. I'm going to protect you. But Ahaz, as we talked about before, is not a godly king. He doesn't trust the Lord and he is not convinced. And so Isaiah then responds to him and says, Ahaz, God wants to give you a sign 
So ask God for a sign. You can ask anything. God will will do it. He will show you through the sign that he's going to protect you. But Ahaz surprisingly says, no thanks. Evidently, because he doesn't believe in God and follow God and obey God, he he doesn't want to get a sign from God because he thinks if God gives me a sign, then I'm going to have to obey him. And he doesn't want to do that. Now, Isaiah the prophet, you can kind of hear between the lines, is getting a little annoyed. And he says, you don't want a sign. I'm going to give you one anyway. And it's coming from God. And what he says next is words you all know, very familiar words. Isaiah 7, 14. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now we today know this as a prophecy about Messiah that was fulfilled in Jesus. But, but it's clear when you read Isaiah that there was a fulfillment of this prophecy at this time. That there was a child that was born. You can read about it, uh, the story in Isaiah 8. But it becomes pretty obvious as you keep going and you get into Isaiah 9 where we have been. That the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy has to come later, especially when you read this incredible description of this child that we have been studying in Isaiah 9. Now, Ahaz ends up rejecting God, and he chooses not to trust God. He chooses to go around the smaller kingdoms and reach out farther to this rising superpower of Assyria, and he makes an alliance with the king of Assyria, This eventually backfires on him because Assyria doesn't just protect Judah. Assyria soon conquers and swallows up Judah. And as we continue in the history of God's people, we see that Ahaz's decision not to trust God just takes Judah further and further into the idolatry that God is going to judge, the idolatry that is eventually going to send them into exile. Now, When you look at these three chapters, Isaiah 7 and 9, there's a lot there to teach us. But some of you may be thinking about this and you may be wondering, well, how does this prophecy of Jesus' birth answer the problem that King Ahaz is facing in Isaiah 7? I mean, that army that's outside Jerusalem, that army that wants to destroy the city and and, and the kingdom, it's still there. How does God's promise of a Messiah who's not going to come for 700 years help in that moment? And with that question in mind, there are three truths that I want you to see this morning. And these truths are truths that apply to our lives even today. Here's the first one. It's a general truth. It it really is a truth that applies to all of the four names that we see in these verses. And it's this, we only find ultimate answers to our problems in Jesus. Now, I know this morning that I am speaking to a group of people with problems. I also know that some of you are probably thinking right now, Mike, you're a pastor and Like, you know, you you live up at the church where all the angels fly around all the time. You don't really know about problems. Actually, I have a lot of problems. In fact, I'm looking at some of my problems right now. (laughs) No, I have problems just like you. And also just like you, many times I, I don't know what to do. Because we all have problems, right? Some of you have health problems. Some of you relationship problems. Some of you, you have kid problems. Or some of you, maybe you found out you can't have a kid and that's your problem. And some of you, you have depression that you're dealing with or anxiety. And maybe it's that your spouse has left. That's your problem. Maybe it's work problems that you're going to face tomorrow when you get up in the morning. Some of you are here today and the truth is you feel like you can't even breathe because of your problems. Like King Ahaz, it seems that you have this enemy and it's larger than you are and you really need God's help. Now the Bible is clear. We see it in our lives that God does help us in the present just like he offered to help Ahaz. God answers prayer. Anybody want to say amen for that? 
He does answer prayer. But here's the thing. Ultimately, all our problems require an eternal solution. Have you ever thought about that? Ever realized that a lot of your prayers are, are really for temporary answers? Like if your health is bad and you pray, God, heal me. If he does, great. Amen. Praise God. But at some point, you still die. Any healing you get now, it's temporary, right? Maybe you say, God, heal my spouse so they don't die and leave me alone. But again, eventually one of you is going to die and leave the other one alone. It's the way it happens in this world that is broken, this world under the siege of sin. And this child that is promised in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, this child was not coming just to give us temporary help. He came to end all battles. He came to rid the world of sin and Satan and death. And we know from the word of God that when he comes and reigns, he will restore families and take away sickness and pain and loneliness and depression. He will abolish wars. I mean, that's ultimate healing. But until then... Just like the people in Isaiah's day, we wait. And while God answers prayers in the present, we still live, all of us, in a world of pain and disappointment. We all still have to wait for God, wait for him to bring in that final healing in the reign of Jesus. Maybe you hear all that. You say, I agree with this, but wait. wait, wait. When, when, when Ahaz heard this, Jesus hadn't been born yet. But now... Jesus has been born, Jesus has come, and the world's still a mess. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes Jewish people say that this is why they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They'll say he came, and like, what's the difference? I mean, the Holocaust still happened. I mean, the Holocaust is post-Prince of Peace, not pre. I mean, you call that peace? I want to explain something that's kind of a mystery, but the Bible teaches it very clearly. The Bible says that the first time Jesus came, that's the first advent, which we're celebrating now, that's Christmas. He came to defeat sin and defeat death by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And he did that because our primary problem is not bad health or bad relationships or armies that want to destroy us. Our primary problem is we are sinners separated from God and enslaved to sin. And so Jesus came the first time and he died on the cross to defeat sin and death. And he now offers that victory to all who will receive what he has done. But when he comes again and he is coming one day, that's called the second advent. When he comes again, he will rid the world of all pain and all suffering I mean, here's your Christmas theology lesson. The first advent brought relief from our sins. The second advent will bring relief from our suffering. But for now, like Ahaz, we're given a promise and we have to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Maybe you're thinking, well, why the wait? I mean, why didn't he just fix it all at once? How many of you would say, I hate waiting? I mean, is there anybody here who actually likes to wait? Anybody here who says, you know, I'm so good at waiting. I think maybe it's my spiritual gift. I'm, I, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody likes to wait, right? We all hate waiting. Kids hate waiting for Christmas. Anybody here about to lose your ever-loving mind because your kids can't wait for another week? I mean, adults, we hate waiting for everything. The kids hate waiting for Christmas, but though we hate to wait, have you ever noticed that waiting is this integral part of Christmas? Because as believers, we live in this posture of waiting, waiting, waiting for ultimate redemption. I remember waiting for the birth of our four babies. And I hated that those nine months, each child, it seemed like it's never going to get there, right? It's, it's like it's taking forever. But at the same time, don't we know that we don't want the baby to come early. See, waiting is hard, but what is developing in that child during those nine months cannot be rushed. And I just want to ask, what if that was God's purpose in what he's doing in your life right now? 
What if God's purpose in waiting is to develop some very important things in you during this time? Can I tell you something? God is never late. God is always on time. God always has all things under complete control. And I know you think he's late sometimes. Ahaz thought he was late, but he's not. He's never been late. He never will be late. He always arrives exactly when he intends to. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus' birth only one time in his letters. This is what he says. It's in Galatians 4. He he writes, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. That phrase in the Greek, the time had fully come, that phrase, it means something like at just the right moment. So if you ever find yourself waiting this, in this place and wondering why it's taking so long, be reminded from the Christmas story, you can know that God always has everything under control. And don't abort what God is doing in you by refusing to wait. See, God will do his work in your life when the time has fully come. Here's the second truth I want you to see. For our present problems, God gives us the presence of Jesus. You see, for now, while we wait, what you get is Jesus. God gives those people back then this promise of ultimate fulfillment in the future. But in the present, we have as his people the presence of Jesus. And it is his presence that always gives us what we need to face life in a world that is under the siege of sin. And what we always need is more of him. Most of you missed that one. A few of you got it. That was a good place for an amen right there. What we always need is more of him. You know, a lot of times we, we, we come to church and we're like asking God to make our lives better. This is a very classic cycle in the, the, the lives of so many people. You know, they, they, they go into adulthood, they get too busy, they don't go to church, they get married and they have kids. And all of a sudden, one day they wake up and think, we, we need a spiritual foundation for our family. So they go back to church and, and people like that often come into church. And what they're really wondering is, can God fix my problems? Can God help my family? Can God help my marriage? Can he make my life better? And I just want to tell you this morning, that's kind of like a little kid saying to his teacher, you know, if a nuclear bomb goes off next to me, will I get hot? And the answer, of course, is yes, you'll get hot. But it sort of misses the point, doesn't it? I mean, if a nuclear bomb goes off next to you, your personal temperature is a little bit irrelevant. And that's the same as like you coming up to God and saying, God, will you make my life better? God, will you fix my my problems? You're missing the point. Because life's greatest joy and fulfillment is to know Jesus. See, the presence of Jesus to you may not take away your problems, but it always redefines them. And for all of you who are here today, right now, you're overwhelmed by a problem. I want you to think about this. I want you to hear this. In Christ, you have the presence of the God who holds the whole universe in his hands. And you have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion really matters. You already have that. Now, We've already studied over the last couple of weeks what it means for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor and to be our mighty God. And, and both of those aspects of Jesus' name are, are telling us that Jesus is what we most need. And it is with that that I want to move into this third part of the title, Everlasting Father. Jesus is called Everlasting Father. And, and we have to admit it's kind of an odd part of the title. I had somebody out in the lobby 
last Sunday asked me about this one ahead of time because they'd already gotten there in their mind. They were thinking about it. Like, how can Jesus, the son, be the father? That doesn't make sense. And Christians believe that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Christians believe that Jesus is God's son. But what's happening here is not Trinitarian theology. Uh, Isaiah isn't speaking about the Trinitarian nature of God. What he's telling us is that this promised King Jesus is going to come and be like a good father to us. And if there was ever anything we needed in a savior, it was a new kind of father. You know, every Sunday that I preach and I look out at, at our congregation, our church family, I see people and I know that for some of you, the greatest pain in your life goes back to a messed up relationship with your father. Some of you had good fathers, but many of you had bad dads. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe he was absent because of divorce or busyness. Maybe Maybe he was a dad who was always disappointed with you. Maybe he, he just never emotionally connected to you. And now, especially this time of year, every year at this time of year, it gets real awkward because you have to hang out with him at Christmas. And that past you have with him is painfully obvious. And the truth is, even if you had a good dad, even the best fathers at some point let us down, inevitably disappoint us. Sociologists and psychologists have consistently noted that our relationship with our father is one of the most significant factors in how we engage with life. There was this school study done in California a few years back that said that 98% of its discipline issues were caused by emotionally damaged boys whose common characteristic was fatherlessness. Came across a while back, this fascinating book by an author named Stephen Poulter. It's called Father Factor, How Your Father's Legacy Impacts Your Career. And in the book, he outlines four types of dysfunctional fathers and the effects that they would have on your career. And, and his categories actually can help us to see how our relationship with our dad can affect how we look at life and even how we see God. Let me share those with you briefly. The first category is the never satisfied dad. Uh, it didn't matter in this case what you did. It was never enough. This is the dad who was always concerned with how you looked, where you ranked in your class, how well you play on the sports teams that you're on. And, and the message that this kid always got was that he had to achieve something to be worth anything. Even if his parents never actually said the words, the kid got it. You're not smart enough or athletic enough or pretty enough. You're too fat. You didn't try hard enough. You don't really make me proud. If you did more, you'd be worth more. And kids who grow up in this kind of home can spend their entire lives trying to prove something to other people. And some of you, you look at God like this. Second, type is the time bomb dad. This is the dad where you never know what to expect, where you're always walking on eggshells. Like if he had a bad day at work, he'd come home and the smallest thing would set him off. And more than once you got hurt verbally, emotionally, sometimes physically. Your dad, it's like he's walking around with a hand grenade in his hand and he was ready to pull the pin anytime. He just controlled the family with the threat of a blow up. Maybe sometimes for some of you with sexual abuse, whatever it was, you, you lived in fear of him. And kids who grow up like this, they grow up hating their dads because you can't love someone you're afraid of. Poulter said there are so many negative ramifications from this. He said an incredible number of anxiety disorders have their beginnings in this style of fathering. And, and one of the ways that many kids respond to this is they, they become like control freaks. We, we call them sometimes casually. You know, it's like when their dads explode, their lives always crash. And so now to compensate, they're always trying to control everything. Some of you even see God like this. I read of one little girl who, when her father would sexually molest her, would quote Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What, is, what does that do to your relationship with God? Now something bad happens, 
If this was you, maybe you find yourself always reacting, thinking, what's God mad at me about now? And you never really learn to love God because you can't love someone you're afraid of. And you might obey God, but you do it out of fear. You don't do it out of love. Actually, the truth is you resent God. And just like with your dad, some of you, you try to control God by doing whatever it is you think you have to do to keep him off your back. You go to church, you're a good boy, you serve, you do this or that, but it's all duty. You have no real love for God. You don't really want to know him. Third dad is the emotionally distant dad. This dad is typically stable, he's consistent, he's moral. He doesn't abandon or abuse you. He doesn't cheat on your mom. He just never expresses any emotion to you. He just never tells you that you're special to him. Psychologists say there are three things that every child needs to hear from his father. I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are good at something. And your, your dad never did any of those things. Because of that, some of you have never really learned to open up emotionally to others, not to your spouse, maybe not to your kids, not to your friends. You keep everybody at a distance. You even see God like that. God to you is somebody somewhere way out there. He's like an intellectual theory that you have to obey or maybe a judge you have to report to. He's not a dad that you want to spend time with. And then fourth, there's the absent dad. This is a dad who, for whatever reason, wasn't part of his kids' lives. Maybe he walked out and abandoned the family. Maybe he was just always working. He didn't spend time with you ever, didn't come to your games, didn't involve himself in your life. And, and you know this, children always interpret absence of their dad as personal rejection. And if this was you, you feel like you weren't important to him. And, and this produces this incredible sadness in the child that they don't quite understand. And oftentimes that, that sadness gets expressed in anger. In the absence of a father figure, young men often try to define their masculinity in other ways like rebellion or violence, maybe like sports or sexual prowess. For some, it's like overachievement. They spend their whole lives trying to prove that they're the man their father never told them they are. Sometimes girls who grow up in fatherless homes become promiscuous, craving the attention that they, they never had. Sometimes girls, some of them, they spend their lives overachieving, always trying to earn and, and, and find their worth. And some of you, truth is, you don't even want to know God because you feel like he'll just leave you. And you may obey him, but it's begrudgingly. You don't love him. You don't trust him. It's kind of an interesting historical fact that almost all of the famous atheists of the, the past hundred or so years, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Bertrand Russell, uh, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, Friedrich Nietzsche, Albert Camus, all of these atheists had one thing in common, the absence of a father. And, and that anger and that resentment expressed itself toward God. And I believe we can say with confidence that the greatest failure of mankind has been the failure of fathering. And if the world is to be corrected and set right, then it will have to be through the restoration of true fatherhood. And so when you just take all that and think about it, you have here in Isaiah 9, this, this description of the coming Messiah, this promised king that just screams out of salvation to us. He will be called everlasting father. See, Jesus, Isaiah is telling us, is going to come and going to be the father we have always longed for. He's telling us that Jesus is like a loving father who rules our lives with compassion. Jesus is also, we are told, going to teach men to become God-like fathers again. In fact, it's the very last verse in the Old Testament in the prophecy of Malachi Malachi says of the Messiah, I mean, this is how the whole Old Testament ends. It's, it's a prophecy about the Messiah and about fathers. It says he, Messiah, is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He's going to restore true fatherhood to us. So let me show you, let me paint for you a picture of Jesus as our everlasting father. Maybe... Your dad was never satisfied. 
Well, Jesus accepts you fully just as you are. See, his salvation, his salvation, his good news was not be good enough for long enough and then he'd save you. The gospel is an announcement of his acceptance of us based on the work that he has done for us. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death we deserved to die. He did it in our place so that when we would receive what he has done, we would be immediately, we would be fully forgiven and completely accepted. We are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. See, because of the cross, think about this. Because of the cross, and we, we talked about this all through Romans. I hope you haven't forgotten. Because of the cross, your father, your heavenly dad could not love you more than he loves you right now. If you had been perfect all your life, he wouldn't love you more. And if your life has been one long series of mistakes, he doesn't love you any less. His acceptance is a gift because he's your everlasting father All you must do is believe and receive it. And some of you I know are saying right now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying and thinking, I don't feel this acceptance, but listen to me, your feelings don't define reality. God says it's true. To be saved means simply that you trust him. And that means if you feel abandoned, It is because you are projecting your feelings onto God. But again, God doesn't define himself by your feelings. And that means that we need to bring our feelings into alignment with the reality of God. God loves us. He accepts us. Was your dad a time bomb, dad? Well, Jesus is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yes, yes, there are times he disciplines us. Sometimes sometimes he allows painful things to happen to us. But when he does, it is never because he's having a bad day. It is never because he's annoyed with us. It is always for our good. That's what we talked about just a few weeks ago in Romans 8, 28, right? That our God For those who love him, he is working all things together for good in our lives. That's why David understood this in the the most famous psalm of them all, Psalm 23, 6. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me, what, all the days of my life. And here's what I want to ask you. Can you say that? Do you believe this about your everlasting father? Do you have assurance that in everything that happens to you, God's goodness and God's mercy, God's good and loving plans for you, that 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 is what is controlling the situation, that that is what is going on? I mean, some of you are bitter about how your life has turned out and, and it really is because you haven't learned to trust God as your father. Third, was your dad emotionally absent? Jesus is always emotionally engaged. Romans 5, 5 says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. (laughs) Holy Spirit, God's love inside us. Do you see that? He's just pouring out love. I mean, it doesn't get any more intimate than that, does it? I mean, here's another, here's another verse about this. It's amazing, maybe a little embarrassing. It's one of my favorite verses really in all the Bible. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with singing. Can you imagine? Like if your dad... This Christmas rejoiced over you with loud singing and dancing. Some of you are like, please, God, no. (laughs) But that's what our everlasting father does. He loves you. He's there for you. He's with you. Maybe your dad was absent. Well, Jesus is not absent. He is ever present. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As I said, many, many kids interpret their dad's absence as rejection. Jesus did exactly the opposite. What we actually deserve was his rejection, but he came and he died for us. And, and we just crave this. We, we yearn for this type of father. And let me tell you why. The reason you crave this is because you were created for it. Many of you say, yeah, that's why I can't understand God. I mean, my dad was so screwed up. But that's no reason not to understand God. I mean, you, you have this inner sense, listen, you have this inner sense of what your dad was supposed to be like because God has implanted that longing on your heart. You know that's the way it's supposed to be. And the reason you know it's the way it's supposed to be is because you were created by a perfect, always loving, everlasting father. He made you for that kind of love and he still wants to give you that kind of love. You know, if your earthly father lets you down, here's what you need to do. Judge your earthly father by your heavenly one, not your heavenly father by your earthly one. If you say, I have a hard time seeing that God has been there, that God's always in control because I mean, where was he when I was abused? I mean, I feel like God has let me down as much as my, my dad. And I understand that I, I get why you would feel that, but I wanna tell you what you have to do is this. You look at the cross always. And when you can't see, when you can't understand, you, you trust in the cross Think about the cross. It, it never looked on that day when Jesus was crucified like evil was more in control. But God, we know, was at that moment working the greatest good that the universe has ever seen. The cross assures us that he always is with us, that he always is loving us, that he's always watching over us, that Jesus is the everlasting father. I just have to ask you, doesn't doesn't this just thrill your heart? Doesn't this just overwhelm you with awe that you have a father who is like this? I mean, just think about the last three weeks. Isn't it amazing what, what we have been seeing about Jesus, how good he is? I'm telling you right now, you better make sure, make your plans, decide which service you're coming to. You gotta be here for Prince of Peace, okay? Easter, not Easter, Christmas Eve. <laughs> I said that on purpose to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> All right, number three. Your greatest danger now is replacing God with something else. I want us to go back to Ahaz. I want to show you something you may have never seen because uh, after Isaiah told him that God would protect him, what, what did Ahaz do? How did Ahaz respond? And we find the answer to that question in 2 Kings 16, 7. I want you to see this. It says, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now think about this. God told Ahaz that he would protect him and he would protect his people. But Ahaz doesn't trust God. Ahaz puts his trust in the pagan king of Assyria. And I want you to notice how he does it. You cannot miss this. He says to Tiglath-Pileser, I am your servant and I am your son. Now, if you put this into more modern language, He's saying, I am your son. You are my father. I need you to protect me and take care of me. I need you to be my daddy. Who's your daddy? And God responds to Ahaz by telling him that Assyria's king will indeed be his daddy. But it won't be a good one. God allows, we know as we read the historical accounts, for Assyria 
to destroy his own beloved people, to judge his people for their sins because they would not trust God, but they trusted in idols. And we know as we keep reading this account that Ahaz just keeps going further and deeper into sins. As you read, he starts sacrificing like the, all the different gods of all the nations all around him. It's like he's trying to see if anything is going to stick, trying to see if anything is going to help. And Ahaz's legacy ends generations later in the exile of his people. You know, many of us have made someone or something besides Jesus our daddy. Do you know what that is for you? We have looked somewhere else for love, somewhere else for security, somewhere else for purpose and significance. We have decided that we cannot trust our everlasting Father, and maybe this is your story. Maybe this is where you've been. Maybe because you are, have been lonely and were not content to wait in your singleness, you compromised who you dated, and that led to all kinds of problems in your life. Maybe because you were unhappy in your marriage, rather than trusting in God and waiting on Him, you cheated on your spouse. Maybe because you're not happy with your income. What God has given you, you, you go into debt by buying stuff you can't afford. Maybe you're, you're just angry about your past. And rather than trusting God to give you the grace to forgive those who have hurt you, you just live in resentment. And maybe because you're like just generally dissatisfied with your life. You're never content. And so you're always on the move, always restless, always searching, always trying something new, trying to find whatever it is you think you're looking for in someone or something else. And the truth is you're refusing to wait. You're refusing to trust God and you're missing out on what God, your everlasting father, wants to do in your life. Is there anybody who needs to be Reminded today that you have an everlasting father and that his name, his name is Jesus. You see, Christmas, above all else, tells us about God's love for his children. Another one of my favorite verses is 1 John 3, 1. It's a verse I need to hear every day. Maybe you do too. And this is what it says. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Listen to me, Southwinds. Don't try to replace God with someone or something else. You have an everlasting Father and he loves you with an everlasting love. That's Jeremiah 31.3. And I have to ask, listen to me. I have to ask, do you believe this? His love is so personal and intimate. He is concerned with the smallest details of our lives. He said, even the hairs on your head are numbered. I know for some of you, that's not a real big deal. Doesn't take long. But 100,000 hairs on average, you know. He knows them all. Our everlasting father, we are told all through the scriptures, wants his children to thrive. Jesus said, I came so that you would have life and have it more abundantly. I came so that you would have joy to the full. And he came not only to give joy, he came to take away our fears. Jesus said one time, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet one of them will not fall to the ground apart from your father. So fear not, you are worth far, far more than many sparrows. And most of all, our everlasting father has promised to safely deliver his people from their greatest enemy, which is death itself, because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We see his love and compassion supremely in his self-sacrificing love. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that good shepherd, our everlasting father, Jesus he walked onto the scene of human history 700 years after Isaiah spoke these words of 
prophecy and he came to live a perfect life for us. He came to take the judgment that we deserve on the cross. He came to rise from the dead to prove that everything he said and did was true. And so that now through repentance and faith in him, we are forgiven our sins, that we are counted 100% righteous and we are filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in us and that same spirit who lives in us cries out from us, inside us, Abba, Father. And now we are part of God's family. We've been adopted as his children, like we saw when we were studying Romans 8 not too long ago. Do you you know that that was the plan from the very beginning? You can go to Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus as sons. And all this was made possible through the faithfulness and the goodness of our invincible King Jesus, who is our everlasting father. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus as your everlasting father? Do you struggle sometimes to believe God cares for you personally? Look to Jesus who says your days are written in his book, who says that he collects all your tears in a bottle. That's Psalm 56, eight. Do you believe that God only loves you like from a distance, from far off? Look to Jesus who said he knew you before the foundation of the world, who knows every detail of your life, like, like he knows every detail of the lives of the most insignificant of birds. He knows everything about you. And when no one else knows, he knows. And he still loves you. He sees you and he's with you. Jesus does not love nameless populations. He loves named persons. Maybe you think that you've committed some sin that God might not forgive. Look to Jesus who removes all our sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you struggle with guilt? Do you see grace as something that you have to like pay back? Look to Jesus and simply receive his grace as the gift that it is. There is no earning in God's kingdom. There is only receiving, which is why Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, every good thing God has done for us is rooted in his compassion for undeserving sinners like you and like me, all of it. He he loves us, not because we deserve to be loved, but because he is compassionate. He answers prayers for us, not because we deserve to have our prayers answered, but because he is compassionate. He sustains us in hardship, whether it's due to our sin or just suffering that happens to us, not because we deserve it, but because he is compassionate. He overcomes our shortcomings and overcomes our failures and overrules all of our shortcomings because, not because we deserve it, but because he is compassionate. And that means, friend, if you are here today and you are struggling, you can lift your discouraged head and look to Jesus and know that he loves you. He is your everlasting father. Do you wonder ever when God's just gonna like give up on you? Look to Jesus and hear him say, never will I forsake you. See, we can trust him because he always has our best interests at heart, always. Whatever he gives us in this world, even when we think it's the wrong thing, even when it seems too painful for us to bear, we can know that it comes from the hand of an everlasting father who always knows exactly what we need. We can trust in every one of his promises because he's never failed to keep one yet. And he's not about to start now. He really is this good. Do you believe that? This is Jesus, our everlasting father, God incarnate, who unexpectedly came as a baby that first Christmas. It's this Jesus who went to the cross to die for all our sins, who rose from the grave so that we might live forever, defeating sin and Satan and death because we are part of Jesus' life, because we've been adopted into the family of God. It is this Jesus who offers us, his people, this internal inheritance that will never perish. It is this Jesus who is the good shepherd who fulfills the desires of every longing soul, whose steadfast love lasts forever. 
who does not deal with us according to our sins, whose mercies never come to an end, who sings over us with joy. It is this Jesus who is orchestrating all things for our ultimate, most profound, and deepest good, who comforts us in our afflictions, who will never forsake us or leave us or abandon us, and who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. What is there not to love about our everlasting father? I actually forgot to say one thing throughout this message. It's that word everlasting. I haven't said anything really about that, but I can sum it up real quickly because everything I've been telling you, all that good stuff, it never ends. It never runs out. It never stops. It's everlasting. All of this goodness, all of this goodness. Jesus is our everlasting father. And maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. If that's you today, I just wanna ask, is that who you thought Jesus was? Probably not. I wanna tell you, you can turn to him today and you can receive all of this goodness that I've been describing today. All you have to do is repent of your sins, place your trust in him and he will bring you into his family. He will become your everlasting father. And brothers and sisters, you're already in the family, then the word is look to Jesus this Advent as everlasting father. Stand firm in his steadfast love. Be encouraged in his immense worth and beauty. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed with awe of the privilege of belonging to him. And let all of this move you to praise and gratitude and worship and joy-filled obedience because our King, the promised one, Jesus the Christ, he is our everlasting Father. And he has come and he is coming again. This is God's word for us today. And all God's people say, Amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Lord Jesus, who can describe the unsearchable riches that are yours and that, that are ours in you? We thank you for revealing yourself in this way and not temporarily, but everlastingly. Oh, Lord, what, what comfort to our souls this truth is. May we, we all not only hear these words, but hear them with faith and hear them with delight. And may they, they, they move us to draw closer to you and to live according to your word and your will. And for any who have not yet trusted in you, Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, would you help these truths not just to land on the surface of our hearts, but to sink in deep to satisfy our souls this Advent. We ask all of these things in the beautiful, precious name of Jesus, our everlasting Father, and all God's people say,